2 Corinthians chapter 13 is where we'll be this morning. We're going to look at verses 11 through 14. This past week was a, a good week for my wife and I. We just celebrated 13 years of marriage. And thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. You can join them if you wanted. Um, we uh, spent the, uh, the, 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 our anniversary just looking at old pictures of ourselves and looking at how much I've changed specifically. Uh, I was 120 pounds when we got married. I ain't 120 pounds no more. And so we started looking at that and, uh, and then look, Jess um, looks just as radiant as she did when I first met her. And I'm just blessed to have a beautiful wife. And so we just were really encouraged to look through those pictures. But as we were looking over them, and we were talking about where we were in this picture, I was just struck thinking about the mind, my mindset when we were dating and when we were like pre-engagement period and when we started seriously talking about marriage. I was struck with how naive I was about marriage, uh, specifically in the area of conflict. Because for me, you know, our relationship was, in my mind, perfect, and we were not going to have any conflict. And so, you know, we even joked when we were dating, you know, we're just not going to be one of those couples who fight. We said that. And, uh, and when, then uh, we were like, you know, babe, you know, there's no way, you know, I just, I mean, what would we even fight about? I remember saying that. And then we got married. And let's just say that we fought once or twice, Okay. A week. Um, and so we have fought quite a bit as a married couple at 13 years. God's grace, he has held us together, and we are thankful for that. But what we've learned through this process is that conflict is inevitable. And not just in marriage, but in every relationship. If you want to grow deep in a relationship with anyone, conflict is inevitable. It's inevitable in uh, every friendship. It's inevitable in every business relationship. It's inevitable in every church. Now, here's what I don't want you to see this morning. I don't want you to think that conflict is automatically unhealthy. Sometimes conflict can be a healthy thing, and, uh, but it's really what we do with the conflict that we inevitably face. If we run from conflict, that's unhealthy. If we try to stay in conflict, that's unhealthy. If we try to spread conflict, that's unhealthy. But how do we handle conflict in a healthy way? Well, fortunately, we have scripture to help us navigate what that means and how to handle conflict in, in a uh, positive way, in a way that glorifies Christ. And so 2 Corinthians, as we've been reading this book together and we've been studying it for the last several months, it's no news to you that 2 Corinthians is a book full of conflict. The conflict happened because uh, false teachers have come into the church and they began to teach a different gospel than the ones that they heard from the Apostle Paul. And it's created this dissension of people uh, choosing sides and, and acting more spiritual than everybody else. And so Paul, what he tries to do is he tries to level the playing field by reminding the church of Corinth their identity in Christ and how they've been made new by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, um, so what, what Paul's doing here is he's closing out this letter is he just has a few verses to just remind them to be unified, to remind them to aim for restoration and to, and to be about people of peace and reconciliation. And the reason why he's doing that, and this is where I want you to catch, if they are disunified, 
and there's false teachers in the church, there's no way that the church that is ununified is going to be able to fight off false teaching and be unified under the gospel. And so what Paul's trying to do is is he's writing this really relevant message of biblical conflict resolution. It's our hope that as we see these final words that we would look at this text and we would look at our lives and, and apply these great, rich, ancient truths to when we inevitably face conflicts. conflict. So we'll pick up in verse 11. He says this in verse 11 of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Now, it's, it's no news to you that every healthy organization or group or business or church, if they want to be healthy, they have to practice conflict resolution. Now, I don't want you to hear this term and think of it in secular terms like how a business or a school or, uh, or any type of organization might handle conflict resolution. I was even hesitant to even use the phrase conflict resolution because when we think about conflict resolution, we're thinking about steps and you know, um, analogies of you know, A means for acceptance and B for, you know, like, and we start to kind of categorize it in the sort of secular terms. But what I want you to see is what Paul is calling these believers too is a lot more. It's, it's more glorious and more is expected of believers in handling conflict than the rest of the world. And that's what I want you to see this morning. And so I could go through all these phrases like Paul says, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace with one another. But what I would rather do first, before I even start explaining those words, which I will, I want to take us first to the 10,000 foot view of why it matters. Because the why is more important than the what, specifically in this text. I can show you what you need to do, but if you don't understand the biblical principle of why it matters, you're going to miss the entire point. So let me show you why it matters. Look at verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus and the, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. In other words, he's saying the triune God is with you, church. The triune God is with you. The the triune God is present with you. Now, I want you to see that this morning as we come together as believers and we we say, you know, Lord, we invite you here this morning. Let me just tell you, he's here because you're here and you're believers. The triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is with you. And what, what he does is he doesn't just say he's with you, God is with you. He actually clarifies each role of the Trinity Father, Son, and Spirit, and how it applies to unity among believers. He, he attributes the, uh, the, the grace to Jesus, because we attribute the grace to Jesus because through Jesus, we receive grace. We receive je- 
grace, because of the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that once we were sinners, now we're made new by the gospel, by repentance and belief, and knowing that Christ has died on the cross for our sins. So we, we understand grace from the, 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 the first member of the or second, third member of the Trinity, or the second member of the Trinity, Jesus. And then we have the love. God is love. That's what First uh, John says. God is love, and the love comes from our Father. That's why he identifies himself as the Father, and he chose us from the beginning and the foundation of the world, and throughout redemptive history, he shows and displays his love through his common grace by giving us the things that we don't deserve, and by his mercy, and by saving us, and redeeming us, and sending his son to die. So we identify love with the Father, but he also attributes then what to the Holy Spirit? Fellowship. Isn't that interesting? Interesting word. He says, okay, the Son, we identify with the Son as grace. We identify with the Father as love, and we identify with the Spirit as fellowship. Now, it's not to say that fellowship is not a part of who the Son is or part of the Father. It's not that one is better at it than the other, but it's how we commonly identify with what member of the Trinity and what that member of the Trinity does in our life. And he says, Fellowship is how you commonly and usefully identify with the work of the Spirit. And that's what he wants them to see. But here's why. Because when you and I, when we became believers in Jesus, if you're in Christ and you're here this morning, this is what the Spirit does in your life. Not only does the Spirit convict you of your sin, not only does the Spirit draw you irresistibly to the Father and have a relationship with the Father, not only does the Spirit allow you to confess your sin, not only does the Spirit give you gifts uh, so that you would then live out the gospel in your life, not only does does God do that through the Spirit, but the Spirit also not only draws you to to Father, but He also draws you to other people. He draws you to other believers. He helps you become united with other believers. And I want you to see that this morning. This is a beautiful truth that continues to show up throughout Scripture. And oftentimes when we think about the Holy Spirit, we think about, okay, the Spirit gives me gifts. Like the Spirit gives me, we look at spiritual gifts. Where do they come from? They come from the Holy Spirit. That's true. But here's why spiritual uh, gifts exist. Spiritual gifts exist so that we can encourage other believers we can edify and encourage the body of Christ, the church. So even spiritual gifts exist, not so we can make us superhumans, but to actually allow us to have greater fellowship with other believers. And it happens over and over and over again in Scripture. Paul is talking to the church at Philippi, and he knows in the church of Philippi that suffering is going to soon come to this church, and he wants them to be unified underneath the gospel. And so what does he say? What, does he, what happens in Philippians chapter 2? Well, he starts in verse 1. Philippians 2, 1, he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation, and the, the word actually is koinonia, which means fellowship. If there's any fellowship... In the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in one accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significantly than yourselves. Let each of you not look at his own interests, but also the interests in others. Now, I want you to see this. 
in both places, in 2 Corinthians 13 and Philippians chapter 2, Paul is wanting to see unity happen for the sake of the gospel. But what's threaded throughout is that they would, as they see unity happen, they would see fellowship that would come only through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. So as you receive the Son, yes, you understand grace. As you know the Father, you understand love. But as you understand the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit brings unity among the saints. And so, yes, in terms of the Holy Spirit's role, he does draw us to the Father, but he also draws us to other believers. That's how unity happens. So let me let you see like, the implications of this. Every time, about this time of year, um, we try our best to make a huge push for small groups. And we're like, man, small groups, be in a small group. They, they meet at all these week, nights of the week. And, you know, we promise the host homes are normal people. And, look, our small group leaders are great guys. You should meet them. And their wives are so sweet. And, you know, we're trying to say, like, child care provided, food provided. You know, you're going to have a blast. You're going to get to know these people, friends for life, you know. And then we're, we're, like, trying our best to communicate this. Like, if you're single, maybe you'll meet your future spouse. Like, we're just trying everything to get you in one of these things so that you can see the beauty of it. Now, when we do that, I, wanna, I want you to hear me. We're not doing that as like some church growth strategy. Like it's not like, okay, we need to boost attendance. So let's get small groups going. Let's start some new ones to, to get some new people here. We're not saying, oh, our giving is not where we want it to be. So let's get small groups. No, here's why we have small groups. Because small groups are where fellowship happens naturally And we just try to show and and, and provide an avenue of what the Spirit is already doing in believers' life. So even if we didn't have small groups, the natural tendency for you, if the Holy Spirit's working in your life, is to draw you to other believers. And all we're trying to do is say, hey, we're going to make it easy for you so you can find other believers and do life with them and be in community with them because that's just naturally what the Spirit does in your life. Are you tracking with that? So this is how important it is. And now, I want to tell you this. I don't know any healthy believers that avoid community. God has not designed your relationship with Christ that way. God has designed your life. Yes, you have this relationship with Christ, but you also, he, the church is God's plan A. It's to be done in the life of community, among other saints, among other believers. You weren't designed to have this solo relationship with God. And I want to attack this idea in the South that we often have. And it's this phrase that I often hear. Well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is a true statement. If you are in Christ and you've been made new by the gospel, you do have a personal relationship with Christ. But here's how it's personal. It's personal only in terms with your relationship with God. But oftentimes it's misused because people say, I have a personal relationship with God. That means don't speak into my life. Don't know me. Don't call me out. Don't challenge me to be in community with other believers. Listen, that's not what that phrase should mean when you say personal relationship. with You don't get to use that as some kind of trump card or get out of something. No. Personal relationship with God, it is personal in the terms of your relationship with God. But guess what? Every other aspect of it ain't personal at all. You weren't made to have this solo relationship. You were made to be in community. And so every other aspect is to be shared. As you know the gospel, you're supposed to share the gospel with unbelievers. As you know the gospel, you're supposed to do life around the gospel with believers and be in community with believers. So this is all a part of it. And so 
Paul wants to build this foundation by helping them see this is what the triune God does in a believer's life. This is what the Spirit does in your life. He wants to bring you not just a closer relationship with the Father, but he also wants to bring you a closer relationship with other believers in Christ. Now, I showed you all this because I want you to see the foundation to what it means to be in unity. And if we don't have this foundation and we don't acknowledge that part of you being a believer and part of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is to draw you to other believers, if you don't have that foundation, we can talk about conflict resolution all day long, but it won't matter and we'll miss the point and we'll get lost in behavior modifications and false attempts of forgiveness and temporary restoration and it will be a waste. But here's the why. The why is believers coming together and unified as a divine, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Don't we want that? Don't we want that? This is the greatest level of unity that you will find. Unity that comes from the Holy Spirit. Want to see that in our country? Don't we want to see that in Charlottesville? Don't we see unity happen in Charlottesville? Here's how unity is going to happen in Charlottesville. Here's how unity is going to happen between Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't come from long Facebook posts. It comes through believers knowing the gospel. And then from the gospel, they then are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit unifies us. That's the greatest level of unity that we'll ever receive. And so that's the what, or that's the why. Now let's look at the what. Look in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Now it's interesting. Paul is using this word rejoice, and he also is telling them to aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace. But he says rejoice. And it seems odd here, but it's important that you know what he means when he says rejoice. The, the word rejoice here is actually in the Greek. It's translated cheratu, which, by the way, I don't use a ton of Greek words. I'm not up here trying to impress you. Um, I'm all about context, context, context. I want you to see why this is written, the meaning of it. That's what I'm really big on. But look, I've done two Greek words in one sermon, so I've met my quota for six months. Um, but I didn't show you this to show off. What I, what I wanted you to see is what Paul really means. The word chirato actually is the same as the words by saying um, hello or goodbye. It's actually similar to the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Peace be with you is sort of what Paul's saying. Paul's sort of like saying, I leave you with joyful peace. And this joyful peace that Paul wants to leave the, the church of Corinth with, he wants them to continue to display among each other. Look in verses 11 through 14, 13. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. There's so much in just these few verses about peace with one another. Even verse 12, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's a weird verse, isn't it? I mean, when I was, was a teenager, I read that. I was like, oh, cool, man, we get to kiss girls at church, right? You know, I'm like thinking, like, but I, I tried to figure out throughout high school and 
throughout my early 20s, what, this, what does this mean? Greet one another with a holy kiss. And it wasn't until I was an, in student ministry in Roanoke Rapids, North Carolina. Now, I'm from Rocky Mount, from eastern North Carolina, and people from Rocky Mount, people from Roanoke Rapids, like, we do things a little differently, all right? I'm be honest. We do things a little differently. And so I remember being a part of this church in Roanoke Rapids, and there was this dude who would come in, and he looked like a WWE wrestler. Like, he, had, he was barefoot every single Sunday. He uh, had cut-off jean shorts, like really short cut-off jean shorts, hairy dude, like always wear a Hawaiian shirt, and he always leaves his buttons like really low, like just awkwardly, like, come on, man, you can button that, you know, like, and he would just leave it in a big scraggly beard. Sometimes he would put like rubber bands in his beard to tie him up, and um, just a, a, a different guy. Um, we had the ear monitors in the pews for like elderly people because they could hear better, and like he would plug that in. I don't know why he could hear fine. He just wanted an extra boost, I guess. I don't know. But I remember this one Sunday, I'm in the lobby, and he comes in barefooted, cut off jean shorts, Hawaiian shirt, scraggly beard, and he says, Brother Ben, and he grabs me by the shoulders, and he pulls me in, he kisses me right here, so much to where I felt his scraggly beard hair go in my mouth, and then he said, 2 Corinthians 13, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have never wanted to know the meaning of a text as badly as I did that day. I'm pretty sure I ran home after church and found a commentary to disprove his interpretation of that text. So the next time I saw him, I'd say, no, 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 this is wrong, bro. You don't, don't touch me, right? Let's, let's hug, right? You know, like that's... And so I learned what that text meant, and now I know what it means, all right? Here's what it means, Okay. When people in the body of Christ weren't getting along, and when there was conflict among the body, what often, how often this was handled was actually at the Lord's table, at communion. That's how people actually dealt with their issues, was, hey, we're going to remember the sacrificial death of Jesus and his atoning sacrifice to his body and his blood that shed. So this morning, we're going to do that with the bread and the cup. We're going to remember Jesus' body and his blood shed. And in and, and the early church, when they did that, they would say, if there's an issue among the believers, don't come to the table unless you deal with that. And so when they would deal with that, when they would come to the table, they're symbolizing, look, yeah, I have no unconf- unrepentant sin in my life, but also I have no issues with other believers. And then and to display that, if there was a situation where uh, there was restoration that was needed and then restoration happened, what would happen is the other believer would come to the one who's offended them and they would kiss them, showing and displaying we're restored. And the other person would return that kiss, showing that it's a restored relationship. It's a restored friendship. It's a restored fellowship. And so when he says, greet one another with a holy kiss, remind them. Remind the saints, there's no issues here. We're one. We have unity. We have, Paul says, peace. And so this theme of peace, it's going to run all the way through Scripture. Now, I'm not saying we need to kiss each other, okay? Unless you're a husband and wife, right? And, but... Sometimes what we do in, this, in our culture is we hug. We give a high five. I do a weird handshake thing that I turn this way, if you know me well. And that's okay. That's what we do. I bro hug, whatever you got to do. Like, we're showing, man, I love you, bro. I love you, my sister in Christ. 
I'm glad that we're here together, worshiping together. The same God. We're unified. We're together. We're one. Look at what we get to do this morning. We get to gather with the saints. We get to worship together our creator and our God. It's our way of saying, man, I'm greeting you with this holy affection, knowing that the, only, the one thing that unifies us is the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is reiterating the same thing in a few verses. He wants, them to, to end, he wants to end this letter with peace, and he wants them to greet one another peacefully. He wants them to live in peace, and the God of peace, he says, will be with them. And I want, I want you to see this word peace is not something that is flippant. When we see the word peace, we often think of it as like this junk drawer thing of, okay, I've got, you know, pallet wood, and I cut it out, and I wrote the word peace, and I put it in my fireplace. You know, we don't really think about what the word means and the weight of the word. But do you know that peace, like having peace among other believers is repeatedly commanded and mandated among believers throughout the whole New Testament. For instance, Matthew 9, verse 50, Jesus says, be at peace with one another. Paul says in Romans 12, verse 18, if possible, so far depends on you, live peacefully with all. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, be at peace among yourselves. Paul says in Romans 14, verse 19, let us pursue what makes for peace. The writer of Hebrews says, strive for peace with everyone. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, writes first in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 11, let him seek peace and pursue it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 22, so flee from useful passions and pursue peace. Paul says in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. Why is this commanded over and over and over again in the New Testament? Well, New Testament scholar Douglas Moo puts it best when he says, believers should relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured for them. Let me read that again. Believers should relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured for them. I want you to see that, the simplicity of that. Most of the time we think peace, we think someone quiet, meek, gentle. We think about Jesus with a lamb over his shoulder, you know, with really pretty flowing hair that looks like it's shiny and has product in it or something like that. We think of it as this peaceful view. We think of a hippie or we think of a pacifist or, you know, someone that wouldn't hurt any, anybody or anything. But let me tell you, the biblical definition is really simple. It's we relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured in our life. And guess what, friends? It's commanded. In other words... Being a part of the body of Christ, being the church, means that every member is responsible for the peace and the unity of that local body that they claim to be a part of. Every single one of us are responsible for bringing peace among the saints. Each member makes a difference of the outcome of any conflict among believers. I want you to see that this morning. Because most of the time our tendency, when when conflict happens, we say, I'm just going to stay out of it. I'm going to let them handle that. I I don't want to be in the middle of it. 
Now, that's how the world handles it, and that's how normal businesses and all these things are going to tell you how to handle conflict resolution. But listen, biblically speaking, every member is a part of bringing peace and unity among believers. And so here's what typically happens, though. And I'm not talking about just how believers handle this, but how, how, how it happens everywhere, among friends and coworkers, family, everywhere. Someone makes you mad. Instead of going to the person that makes you mad, what do you do? You go to someone else. And then you vent. And if you're really spiritual, say, I've got some concerns about this person. Let's pray for this person, right? But then what happens is you end up venting too long. You end up slandering that person. You end up gossiping about that person. And here's what rarely happens, unfortunately. The person who gets mad goes to the person who makes them mad. That's what rarely happens. So they stay mad. They stay bitter, and it grows, and then it gives birth to disunity. Then they find other people to vent to, and then it continues, and then it spreads. But here's the other thing that rarely happens in the same vein. The person who's hearing the venting then tells the person to go to the one who offended them and make it right. That is also equally rare. Now, it's good to listen to others, and we should. We should help others process things. We should sympathize with others who are hurt. But if your goal isn't, specifically with believers, to bring about restoration, you are missing the entire point. God's purpose of you being in the middle of any conflict God sovereignly gives you that as a gift so that you would not just be a listening ear, but you would be a person of peace to help bring about restoration. And so if someone comes to you with an issue that you have with someone else, instead of just that that person has with someone else, instead of just being hearing them out, would you listen to them but then ask them the question, what are your steps now to bring about restoration? Would you listen to them and ask them to, and tell them that you want to hold them accountable? Would you say, next time you see them, would you say, hey, how are you doing with that? Have you made steps of rebuilding that relationship and that fellowship that the Holy Spirit has given you? Now imagine the impact if we lived this way. If we lived in peace with other believers and we strive to be peacemakers when other believers face conflict. This is what it means to be a person of peace. We are actively pursuing unity among believers. And as Paul is writing this, he's assuming they have done this not from a distance, but face to face. And I gotta tell you, we live in a generation that has been trained to cut corners in handling conflict and resolving conflict and building peace. The internet causes us to hide and not have real dialogue. Rather, we tweet out our passive-aggressive statements that hurt people and confuse people. We make Facebook posts that are long and lofty and ambiguous, and they cause more confusion. And then when we're ready to have a serious talk with someone, we email them. As if that's serious. And I'm a big Jimmy Fallon fan. I love the hashtags bits that he does, that every week he sends out a hashtag, and then people have to come back with it so it could be like, you know, things that your mom says and people hashtags funny things their mom says or ways that they got fired. And uh, one of my favorite ones, Jess and I saw uh, on YouTube, we were watching it, and it was uh, how uh, ways that I got dumped. 
that was just funny stories about the ways that someone broke up with another person. So this one guy tells the story that the girl breaks up with him by sending him an email and then calls him at work and he answers his work phone and she says, check your email, and then hangs up. I mean, imagine being in that, in that situation, check your email, and then you're like, oh, I'm you know, breaking up with me. And we think, oh, that's really intentional. Yeah, it's not intentional at all. That's just where our culture is with how to handle conflict, how to end relationships. That's where we are. But you, can't, you can rarely handle conflict through the internet. I just want to tell you that. To be a person of peace, you have to have direct contact with people. You have to sit down with them so that your words aren't misunderstood or misconveyed or, or taken out of context, that people can see you and look at the eye and see your emotions and see your heart and your, your desire to rebuild that relationship and establish that relationship. And sometimes this is difficult, isn't it? Most of the time, that's not what we want to do. Well, would you private message me so we can talk about this offline? No, man. Meet with a person one-on-one. That's, what God, that's the way God's intended it to be. That's what Paul says, aim for restoration. Go to the person. Even if you look at uh, chapter thir- the, the, the beginning of this chapter, chapter 13, verse 1, he says, uh, this is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's assuming you're doing this together, and there's sometimes you've got to bring other people with you because you, it might just go badly. Or maybe you've talked to them about it before, and you need to talk to them about it again, and so this time you want to have a witness. And I'm not saying that every single time you've got a conflict with somebody, oh, I've got to bring my posse, right? I've got to get everybody together. Josh hurt my feelings again. I got to get all the staff together and we got to have a, you know, you don't want no problem, want no problem with me. Like, I don't, you know, it's like we got to get into this relationship because I'm going to bring my group together and we're going to confront him. No, man. That's not how it has to work every time. We have the words of Christ that tells us how to navigate this. Matthew 18, verse 15, he's telling believers how you do this. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. See that? Go and tell him his fault between you and him or her alone. Now, if you're a guy, you need to go with, to another guy alone. But if you're a girl, go to another girl alone. But if you're a guy, maybe not go with a girl alone and deal with the conflict, okay? Maybe that's when you bring another witness. But he says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, so if it, if it goes badly, Jesus is saying, this, this continues to happen. If he's unrepentant, maybe he's sinned against you and, or she's sinned against you and doesn't care, doesn't matter. He says then, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying, then you have accountability. It's not he said, she said stuff. If he returns to listen, if he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are strong words. He's like, okay, you, take a, you, take, you go to that person directly, you speak to them alone, and you try to work it out with them. If they're not repentant and they're not receptive, then maybe you want to take other believers to help have that accountability for your sake and for their sake. And if they're continuing to walk in unrepentance, and, they, and then you bring it to the whole body and let other believers then uh, evaluate it. Let the elders of the church then evaluate it. And he's like, man, if they're not repentant, and they don't want to restore, and they don't want to make it right. He's like, man, maybe they don't even get the gospel. He says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, non-believer. Because part of the gospel's work in your life is not only do you want fellowship with other believers, you want peace with other believers. You're not okay with unrestored relationships and relationships that uh, haven't been reconciled. You're not okay with that, man. That bothers you if you're a believer. 
And if you're okay with that, man, maybe you really don't get the gospel. Maybe the Holy Spirit isn't at work in your life. Maybe you've never repented and believed in the gospel. And friends, I've got to tell you, being a believer and walking in mature, godly relationships, at some point, you're going to have a conversation like this. You should. If you really deeply care for people, and eventually you're going to see people fall into sin, and you've got to say, man, I love you too much to watch you go into this. Eventually, someone's going to say something they shouldn't say and hurt you. And then you've got to go, back, go to them and say, listen, man, this is where I'm hurt. This is where I'm bothered. This is where I don't feel like we're connected. This is where I feel like we're, we're, we're disjointed. And if you've never had that conversation, man, I would argue that you're not really in a deep relationship with anybody. Because this is inevitable. Every believer should experience this. Not necessarily to the degree that, uh, to the end where uh, it has to go before the church. I don't think every believer has to experience that. But, but on some level, somewhere in Matthew 18, whether it be we talked to someone and we had to bring witness in, some point, this has got to happen in a believer's life because we've got to be growing deeper in, in community. And as we grow deeper in community, we'll find more and more conflict. That's how it works because we're sinners. But every believer should experience this because every believer will inevitably face conflict. And so this morning, we've heard the Why? The why is we want fellowship with other believers because that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And then we've heard the what, and the what is we are called, all of us, to live in peace among each other. And so my questions are simple. Are you living out the what, and are you living out the why? Are you living out the why? Are you living in community? Do you have genuine fellowship with other believers? Are you just leaning on this? My relationship with Christ is personal. I don't need other believers. No, you were created to be in community. And not only that, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So are you living that out? Second question is, are you living out the what? Are you a person of peace? Would you describe yourself that way? Man, I strive to bring peace with other believers, and I strive to, see, strive to see other believers have peace among each other. If you're marked by gossip and slander, putting people down, creating disunity, you're not a person of peace. But the gospel calls you to more. The gospel calls us, says, live peacefully among yourselves. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Who do you not have peace with this morning, what steps are you taking and aiming for restoration, as Paul says? And so here's my hope as we wrestle with these questions. It's my hope that we would relate to one another in a way that facilitates and demonstrates the peace that Christ has secured for us in the gospel. We were once alienated. We were not foreigners. We were once apart from God's love. We were once, we once did not have peace with our creator. But how do we have peace with our creator? God sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die in our place so that we would have peace with our father. And then not only that, we would understand community and love from our father and then demonstrate that to others. And that's our hope this morning. Let us pray.